So my friends, we're going to continue on with the ministry of the Word. I want to encourage you, we are in our second week of 1 John, and so open up to page uh, 1021. Oh yeah, sorry, I'm getting that look from uh, the deacons that, hey, we got some bills to pay. (laughs) This is going to be our moment to uh, give of our tithes and our offering. While you are doing that, you may open up your Bible to 1 John chapter 1. Um, Our reminder is that this is, uh, this series is about what are the signs of life. If we have faith in Christ Jesus, what are the signs that there really is life here? Back in 2017, all the way back in 2017, there was a piece of art that was uh, sold in New York. Carol, would you throw that up? Mm. Can anybody tell me, is Jenny Hunter here? No. Can anybody tell me who is the artist? Oh, come on. I know you're a bunch of hicks, but really? Where's, where's your artistic flair? No, no. This is Jean... Ah, it looks like Picasso, right? Jean-Michael Basquiat. Uh, this, Basquiat. And so this, this piece of art went up on the, the auction block back in 2007 in... In, uh, in New York on a great big uh, art sale. And when the final gavel was dropped, this piece of art sold for $110.5 million. That, $110.5 million. This Basquiat is one of the, uh, one of the, this piece was one of the most expensive pieces of contemporary art ever auctioned. Not something you'd put up in your living room, right? It set a new record in the U.S. at an auction. The best selling up to that point was $105.4 million paid in 2013 for an Andy Warhol piece of art. And here's the funny thing, or the crazy thing, is the the Toronto art dealer who owned that original piece of art, or that piece of art, was, was in possession of a lot of art pieces by Basquiat, and, uh, but there's one problem with this, this piece of art. Nobody knows for sure if it's actually genuine. Nobody knows for sure, because there's no written proof that Jean-Michel Basquiat ever painted it. Because the artist died from a heroin overdose in 1988. There's no chain of, uh, that follows it from the artist to this person, to this person, to this, this person. So if these pieces are actually authenticated, then these paintings are really worth a fortune. But... If not, then they're just merely a piece of curiosity. But comparatively, they are worthless. They are not worth a nickel. Priceless or worthless 
It all depends on whether or not it is real or not. That is where it comes down. So, but there is something that is far more uh, expensive and, and worth far more than the crown jewels in, in London, than all the gold in Fort Knox, which nobody really knows for sure if there's any gold in Fort Knox. Um, and it's worth more than all the investments of Warren Buffett put together. It's certainly far more enduring. And unlike the, the paintings or the money, it cannot be destroyed and it cannot be stolen and taken away by anybody. And it will also last forever. And what is that? What is that thing? It is genuine faith. You don't need a lot of it. You don't need a lot of genuine faith. In fact, Jesus says all you need is the faith of a mustard seed. Just, just enough. And you will... That's enough. With that minuscule faith, you, you have enough to uproot trees and to overturn mountains. It, it's not the amount of faith. You can have the tiniest bit of faith. That's all that you need. In fact, there was three guys on a cross. There was one that was left. And he said, I believe. And Jesus said, Surely you will be with me in paradise. It takes only a tiny bit of faith. But if it's genuine and the object of your faith is Jesus Christ alone, then you have something of greater value than the richest person in the world. But on the flip side, if you have counterfeit faith, you have nothing. It's empty. So today... Each of us has got to ask this question. How can we know if we have real, genuine, authenticated faith? How do I know that I know? To authenticate a, a painting, all you have to do is check with the, the history of the ownership, the chain of command, how it has made its way to the, the auction block. You can run forensics on it. You can consult with experts. How do we check the authenticity of our faith? How do you know if your faith is priceless or if your faith is useless? And that, this morning, my friends, is what John is going to help us understand. So would you please stand? We are going to read 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 6 and reading through to verse 11. 1 John chapter 6. 1 verse 6, sorry. If we say we have fellowship him with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we have not sinned, if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. 
My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of ours for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is that is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if your faith is genuine, it will believe some things to be true. You don't need a a PhD or a a master's of divinity in theology. Uh, But you do need to cling to some absolute truths, not just in your mind, not just up here that I can, I can spit back information to you, but you need to cling to these truths with all of your being. So what is the first thing that, that John says? Listen, I'm going to give you a test. And this first round is, this is the test. It is the truth test. The truth test. The truth test in this first epistle of John, John says, listen, I'm going to give you a bunch of them, but here's the first one. And they all begin with the, if we say, if we say. So it starts off in verse 6, in verse 8, in verse 10. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't even in us. If we say we have not sinned, we're blameless, then we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. These are all, all, if you will, negative tests. If we hold these beliefs, John says, listen, it shows that you are in serious trouble, that your faith is not genuine. If you say that, man, I I got fellowship, but I'm still walking around in my old lifestyle and I am unchanged, you are in some serious trouble. If you say that you don't even have sin, 
You are self-deceived. And you are in serious trouble. If you say that you have not sinned on top of that, you are saying that God is a liar. That you, you, I really don't have a problem. I don't know what you're talking about, God. And John says, listen, you say that, you've got some issues. You've got a challenge. So what is it that these negative, negative tests hold in common? They all deny the reality and the severity of our sinful condition. Every man, woman, and child that walked in here this morning, you are sinful. You may have cleaned up and put on your best outfit. You may have even showered this morning and did a little doo-wop with your hair and you're looking great this morning. But you know what? Each and every one of you are sinful by nature. And I don't know about you, but I know that I have serious problems. I'm self-aware enough to go, I am messed up. I got some issues. I got sin issues in my life. But I really like to run life my way. I'd like to win the day. I don't want to live God's way. I prefer to be the king of the universe rather than God being the king of the universe. My life is basically a movie about myself where I am the main character in, in which you are all my supporting characters. It all revolves around me. That's how I, I, I enjoy my life. But the reality is, you're not the point. I'm not the point. But I am hopelessly selfish and I tend to think that about the things that don't matter rather than the things that really do matter the things that have gravity and weight that's me but according to John it's also you John says that if we pretend that this sin that is living in our lives, if that sin isn't a problem, or if we say it's not a problem, that we are really in grave danger. Our, it's quite possible that our faith is not true. It's not real. It's not authenticatable. Our, our faith is really worthless. It's rubbish. It's garbage. Genuine faith begins with us admitting the truth about ourselves. Being honest with confessing. And confession is agreeing with God, with what God says about us. That we are sinners. And that the problem of our sin is serious and it is even deadly. Not only that, but genuine faith also receives those who have genuine faith also receive their cure that God has given to them for that sin. John explains the cure for your sin if we confess our sins. He's going to be faithful and just to forgive you from, of all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, listen, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. And you know who it is? It's Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours, but for the whole world. In other words, all who believe on Him, they have the cure for our sin-sick lives. Genuine faith really understands the seriousness and the gravity of sin. It also accepts that accepts God's solution for this sin. It's not just I'm going to scrub up and look better and be nicer and muster up enough strength so that on Sunday or Tuesday or whenever I see other Christian people, I look like I have my act together. That's not the solution. That is life-sucking. It's exhausting. The solution is that Jesus died as a propitiation. Don't worry, I'll get to that word. Propitiation for our sins. You see, God has to be angry at sin. Even we get angry at sin, don't we? I I know enough of your stories in here where you have been affected, deeply affected, and there is bitterness in your lives because of the sin that has happened. Yes? Yes. Can you be honest? And some of you may have been the cause of that pain. And it's okay that we are angry with sin. That is part of, we want, God is angry with sin. But His anger is pure. The wrath of God is not just an emotion that flares up from time to time like God is having a a temper tantrum. It's a way of describing his absolute hatred against all wrong and his way to come to set all matters right. Jesus, John writes, is the propitiation for sin. Propitiation is just this biblical, fancy, theological word that is extremely important that means that Jesus satisfied, satisfied God's just and holy wrath against sin. Jesus was our satisfaction. He took our place. Jesus did what we couldn't do. He satisfied the wrath of God and he made full payment for our sins so that we could be forgiven and we could be cleansed. And that's the truth test. John says, says, believe this. Believe that Jesus is the cure for your sin-sick soul. You believe this? You trust in Jesus Christ alone as your solution, your help, your Savior, your righteousness. You have genuine faith. So let me ask, have you believed this? Not just up here. But do you believe here with your heart? deeply convicted of your sin and you know that you are a terrible Savior? Do you believe in Christ alone? Do you see the seriousness of your sin before a holy and awesome God? And do you understand that God is justly angry against your rebellion against Him? 
Do you see Jesus as your only solution for this and much more importantly, have you trusted in Him alone that He is enough for all of your sins? If you have, that is, that is good news. In fact, you have believed the good news. If you haven't, I urge you today to take action. Turn from yourself. Run away from yourself and trust what Jesus has done for you. I urge you, do not wait a moment longer. You can have genuine faith today. But John doesn't leave us there with just trust in Jesus. Because he knows our life. He presents a second test for us. It's called the obedience test. If you don't know me well enough, uh, you probably don't know that I am, uh, I can be a compulsive buyer. Right, Laura? Uh Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the areas of my compulsive buying is around technology. I love gadgets. I love these kind of new things. But thankfully, Laura is uh, the Great Wall of China, again, most of the time, against my my buying impulses. Uh, Or else we would be in more trouble than we are right now. But that means that I cannot always buy the gadgets that I really want. I would love a new iPad. I would love to have and a bigger one because my eyes are getting old and, you know, I want something bigger. And I would like to have a new this and a new that. But it forces me to save or trust in Christmas. Well, a few years ago when the Apple Watch came out, I started frothing at the mouth. It was like, oh, baby, that is exactly what I want. So I went to the uh, Apple store on my own, of course, right? <laughs> on my own. <laughs> kind of took the backdoor approach. And, um, and I discovered it was out of my price range. And if I came home with it, my wife would kill me. <laughs> and so uh, what made things even more complex and difficult for me was that uh, Todd got an Apple watch before me. So it's not only my desires, it was compounded by now my jealousy. And so what do I do? I went to AliExpress online to see if I could find something. And sure enough, you know what? For $79.98, you could buy an iWatch. The reality is, it's not. It, it, it may look like it from the outside, but inside it is not the real thing. The problem is it's not an Apple Watch. It can do a lot of the same or similar things that an Apple Watch can do. It may look genuine, but if you can't do the real thing, do what the real thing does, then it is not the real thing. And so it is exactly the same with our faith. It's the same with our faith. We are not saved by our obedience to all of God's laws. Apart from Jesus, nobody apart from Jesus is good enough to be accepted by God on the basis of your ability to muster up enough strength to obey. We are saved by 
His obedience. We're saved by His obedience, not our obedience. We are saved by grace through faith on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. But genuine, genuine, real deal faith always, 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 circle it, underline it, highlight it, big letters, always results in obedience. Always. And so John says that obedience is a test to see if our faith is actually genuine. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. At first glance, this is an absolutely shocking test. It feels like you are set up for failure. Whoever says that uh, you're in Christ Jesus, you got to walk just like Jesus did. Well, we know how Jesus walked, right? How? Perfectly. I'm screwed. You are too? There's no hope for you if we are supposed to do this. So at first glance, it feels like a shocking test. The test of genuine faith is that we have to keep God's commandments. You can't have a knockoff, a cheap kind of imitation. It's not real. So it seems that some people who, who at this time had left the church saw Jesus as this deep secret source of knowledge that could help them attain the afterlife. In other words, they disconnected their head, their knowledge, from the reality of the 365 days a year. They disconnected. And they said, all I need to have is just knowledge. Following Jesus meant that, basically, if I, if I believe intellectually in Jesus, I am set up for eternity. And I don't really have to worry about how I live right now. Is that a testimony of the Christian church? If, if I would have the superhuman uh, power of invisibility, which is kind of creepy, and I could follow you around on a day-to-day basis, would your head knowledge affect your obedience, your desire to live consistently? Or is it a lie? Because John says, listen, if you don't obey Jesus, you don't have genuine faith. Genuine faith always, again, always, always changes how we live. If we have genuine faith, real faith in Christ alone, God changes our hearts and our minds so that we want the things, our appetites change. We desire the things that God wants. We want to please Him because we love Him and we are grateful to Him. So our appetites change and we want to obey. We want to walk as Jesus walked. We want to be faithful. 
So one of the things that's very attractive about certain religions in our world and philosophical systems in our world now is that they do not really make much of a demand of you. You can believe what you want and do whatever you want to do. In fact, you can even make up the rules as you go. Take Stoicism, for, for example. And some of you are going, well, I don't know anything about Stoicism. And that's really an issue here in 2018? Yeah, it is. I, I see it in podcasts. I see it in business books that promote this idea of Stoicism as an approach to life that we should all embrace. And so what is this kind of Stoicism? Stoicism argues that we should pursue self-mastery and become a better more peaceful person. But the reality about Stoicism is it makes no moral demands on your life. You become your own God. The reality is, true faith says, no, no, no. I would rather please my God and my Savior. Contrary Contrast that to Christianity. Christianity requires obedience to a holy God who gives commands. God actually gives commands. And they're in the high 90s, these, these commands are in the imperative voice, which means do this. It's imperative, it's required. So God gives us commands. And sometimes these commands we don't always understand and we often don't agree with them, right? I'm uncomfortable with that. That whole human sexuality thing. I'm uncomfortable with this whole how we view money. I'm I'm uncomfortable with how, God, you're talking about giving and generosity or how we should treat poor people or people who are immigrants. I'm really uncomfortable with that. And in fact, I'm going to create my own little world where I'm God. And I get to decide. And we have a way of ignoring. This this kind of stuff, this, this struggle with God, drives many people crazy. I love how Stormy, uh, or Martin, I think is her name, how it's put. She says this. Trust that God has your best interests in mind. And be willing to do what he asks of you. Even if... You do not understand why. Obedience starts with having a heart that says yes to God. And John isn't talking about perfection here. Because it's clear that nobody in this room or in humanity has ever reached the complete level standard of obedience before God. That's why he just wrote a few sentences, what he wrote a few sentences below. He said, If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he's not looking for perfection. He's asking for self-awareness of the sin in our lives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. So John isn't targeting those who want to obey Christ but fail because that's all of us. 
He's targeting those who only obey God on their own terms and refuse to submit in every area of their lives, even when they don't agree or understand. He's saying, listen, if you are confessing your sins and you are trusting in Christ alone, I'm not talking to you, but you. I'm not talking to you really, but I'm using you as an illustration. Those of you who are choose, say you have faith, but you choose not to have your life change, you choose not to be obedient, you're lying. Those are hard words, right? It's uncomfortable. So let me ask you, knowing what you know of the Christian life, of God's expectations, His demands, how are you doing with the obedience test? If you have genuine faith, it will result in your desire and your work towards obedience. That is part of what we call sanctification. Putting to death the old and saying, you're dead. In Christ, I'm alive. I'm a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Ah, you're dead. You're dead. And I'm becoming more and more alive. It will change the way that you live. You won't just obey out begrudgingly. You will obey out of the joy. You will, you will be willing to submit to God and live as if he knows better than you. So God's, keeping God's command is the key of evidence in this chain of proof of your love for God. So if any of you have any kind of spiritual smarts about you, pay attention. Do you have an enemy? Scripture says forgive him. Have you wronged or are you wronging somebody right now? Be reconciled to one another. Are you constantly bad-mouthing brothers and sisters in Christ? Then get off of Facebook or Twitter or quit gossiping in, in around your little circles. Are you, are you maxed out on credit card debt? Then do some plastic surgery, cut it up, and live on soup and pot pies. Are you lazy? Quit laying around, playing video games, and, and get a job. Or get to work, be constructive. Do you struggle with cursing or, or crude language? Remember that you are going to have to give an account for every idle word that you say. Are you a two-faced hypocrite? Then get right with God and stop. Stop being the Jekyll and Hyde. Quit playing the charades. Bring all of your junk and broken pieces of your life, bring them all. The smelly, messy stuff, bring them all to Jesus. He will forgive you. He will heal you. He will restore you. He will empower you. He will set you free when you walk in obedience to His will. Keeping God's commandments is a key piece of evidence that we have genuine faith. So there's the, the belief test, the the truth test. And then there is this obedience test. And John gives us one last and final test. 
And for some of us, this is the hardest test of all. Just when you think you are done, John gives us one final test. He says, whoever is in the light and hates his brother or sister or friend or neighbor or whoever, fill in the blank, whoever hates them is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother, sister, neighbor, friend, fill in the blank, abides in the light. And there is, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So let's keep this simple. You have genuine faith if you have love. And especially if you love fellow believers. No matter where they are in their journey. You have genuine faith if you love fellow believers. And this is shocking. As Christian, ours is a, a different ethic. It's a kingdom ethic. We live by an ethic that, that comes from above. That truth is brought home when Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus said, listen up. You love your enemies. And you pray for those who are persecuting against you. He says that we are not just to refrain from, from hating our enemies but we are to have a positive attitude even towards our, our enemies. It's not just like, okay, I don't hate them anymore. But we're actually to positively love them. Those that persecute, Jesus says. He's taking, he takes the worst of enemies. And we've got to ask you want me to love those, those people who have created pain and agony and discomfort and brokenness in my life and the lives around them? They are a ticking time bomb. They smell of a garbage heap. I know they've got the faith like a mustard seed, but man, you want me to love those people? And Jesus says, uh-huh. Even Stephen, the first Christian martyr, uttered these words as Saul was standing there holding his garments. Stephen utters these last words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Are you real? Serious? They are crushing your body with boulders. And you, in your last dying breaths, are saying, Lord, don't, don't hold this sin against him. This just isn't impossible. This is impossible, we, we, we think. I can't do that. And I agree. You cannot do this on your own flesh. On your own strength. It is absolutely impossible for you to love your enemies. Those who persecute, persecute you. It's easier just to give them the bird 
Write them off. Move along. Have bitterness take up residence in your heart and just say, that's the way it is. It's easier to do that. But, but it is possible, my friends. It is possible for a child of God, someone who has genuine faith, who believes in Christ alone, It's possible for you by the Spirit of God to love the enemies of God for the glory of God. It is absolutely possible. Stephen possessed the power of Christ within him. The same Christ who hung on a cross, died on that cross, who cried out to his Father in prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Isn't this the point of the Christian life? We look different because we are different. He has changed us, not just externally. He has changed us completely. As Christians, we don't belong to this world. We don't respond as the world does with hatred and anger. Let them foam at the mouth but not us. Let them be, have these continual cycles of anger and bitterness and rage over the day's news, over the day's injuries, the day's insults, but not us. How do we manifest the love of God instead of manifesting anger and hatred? How do we do this? It's only by His power. And some of you are sitting here going, yeah, but you don't know what she has done. You don't know what he has done. It's possible. Through Christ. Only by reminding ourselves that we ourselves have no ground to stand on is a starting spot. We have got to even ask ourselves, look internally and say, how can I have anger and even hatred in my heart towards that enemy when I was the recipient of God's love? I received His grace when I was His enemy. How can I have anger? How can I have hatred? Uh, Has a greater injury or, or insult been offered to me than I offered to God? How can I not give what I have received? He has loved me so richly, so powerfully. He has forgiven me so completely. He has pursued me and pursued me and pursued me and pursued me until he, I, I would have said, God, give up. But God continues chasing after How can I not understand the grip of sin that it has on lives? How can I not be moved with compassion that they lack the knowledge of grace, the grace of God, or don't know it to the degree that I do? We take a step back and we have to look at our enemies with the lens of God's grace and love. We have to. 
This community of faith has got to be a community of faith that is saturated and willing to embrace the absolutely messy people in life. Anything less is saying, God, you're a liar. You can't fix them. Or you can't use me. So I'm going to offer you, because I know some of you want some real practical ways. How do I do this? Because this is really a big thing. How do I, how do I love people? Six, pray for a soft heart. Ask God to soften your heart towards this person. To put off all anger, irritability, because they get under your skin, right? To put on meekness, to put on kindness, to understand that this person struggles and pray that you can meet them with compassion. That's number one. Number two, pray for them. Start with yourself. It's always, you always want to go for them first because they're the problem, right? Start with yourself. And then two, pray for them. Ask God to be at work in their lives. Drawing, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, asking God, draw them to you. Sanctify if they are in Christ. Sanctify them. Make them more holy. Make them more like Jesus. Number three, do what God did. Move towards them, not away from them. We see that in in the Garden of Eden as God chose to come near humanity and walk with them. We see it in in Luke chapter 2 in the incarnation of Christ. God made a way by actually putting on flesh and dwelling among us. He moved into our zip code. He moved into our space, our neighborhood. So our tendency, our natural tendency is to veer away, right? Get away from them. But they're they're precisely the people that we need to be intentionally moving towards. Four, find basic ways to bless and encourage them. Write them a note of appreciation when you see something beautiful. Buy them a book that has been an encouragement to your own heart. Don't buy them a book saying, you need this. But a book that has been encouraging to your heart. Tell them that you're praying with them. Ask them, can I take you out for coffee or lunch? Number five, give them grace just as God has given grace to you. Remember, God's God has lavished his grace upon grace upon grace on your daily sins. Ask God to help you bear with them, forgiving them as he has forgiven you. And number six, and this for many of us, myself included, is difficult. (laughs) Realize that you too could be the difficult person in someone else's life. You might be the issue. You might not even realize that you are a thorn in the flesh in their lives or to someone else's. 
So don't be oblivious to your shortcomings. Three tests. Knowledge, obedience, and love. May we grow in all three in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Let's pray.